Turn with me to Luke 7 today as we look at verses 18 to 23. Luke 7, 18 to 23. And what do you do with your doubts? Uh, Sometimes we suppress doubts. We just wish that they would go away. Uh, and maybe they do, right? Maybe some, maybe it's just a passing fancy. Uh, we ate a little bit too much Taco Bell, and so there was just a bit of indigestion that gave us doubt of, of the goodness of God. Uh, but, but maybe we, maybe they do. So maybe they go away. Uh, maybe they pass. Or maybe they pile up. And sometimes doubts can pile up in such a way that, that they just burst out all at once, and, and there's a, a, a massive change in our thinking all at once. Sometimes we see doubts and we recognize that they are illogical, right? They're not based in reality. And, and we have to uh, show ourselves the truths of, of the matter uh, to dispense with them as foolishness. And yet other times we find maybe a kernel of genuineness in the doubt. Maybe we, we find something and we realize that there is an element to it that, that seems to be true. And so we investigate it. We do research. We talk with someone knowledgeable about the issue. Now, we come to some kind of conclusion at, at the end of that period, right, where we either uh, get rid of it wholesale, right, we reject the doubt as unreasonable, or maybe we change, right? we believe the doubt, the doubt is genuine, and there's good reason for it, and so we change our thinking, we change our understanding. Doubts are common. We are imperfect people, and we have imperfect knowledge. Um, we don't know ourselves that well. Uh, though we like to think so, right? But we often don't know ourselves. We don't know what motivates us uh, until we really stop and, and think through these things. Um, but we also don't know the world around us that well. We don't know what's going on in other people's hearts. We don't, we don't know things. In the scriptures, we find people with doubts. We find good old doubting Thomas, right? Which is a bit of a mis- misnomer because all of the disciples could equally be called doubting. Uh, they all had the same doubts about the, the truth of Jesus' resurrection. It's just that Thomas gets first billing. And we have our passage today uh, in which John the Baptist seemingly expresses doubts about the reality of who Jesus is. And today I want us to see in our passage that Jesus is the Christ who has indeed come. He is the Christ who has indeed come. So I want to read for us out of Luke chapter 7, and starting in verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Uh, Let us go to the Lord in prayer. 
Great God, as we come to your word now, we do pray indeed that you would help us to see and understand who Jesus is. Father God, give us grace in this moment, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen. So as we come to our passage today, there are a couple things we need to know in in kind of setting the frame of what's going on here. Uh, And the first is this, which John is this? Right? There are many Johns throughout the scripture. Uh, and so which John is this? This is John the Baptist. This is the John who heralded the coming of Christ. We could look at John 1, uh, the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 1, verses 19 through 23. John 1, 19 through 23. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed... I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Right, so this is John the Baptist, and John's ministry was one of heralding. He was an announcer. Uh, he, he got up and he announced the coming of Christ. He's the one who again and again pointed to the necessity of the coming of Christ, and he confessed again and again, I am not him. I am not the one that you should be looking for. There's one to come. The second thing, though, that we have to kind of frame our passage with is Uh, If we look at verse 18, right, it says the disciples of John reported all these things to him. And we have to ask ourselves, what are these things uh, that the disciples of John are reporting to him? Well, Luke tells us that the most immediate matter. So, right, if we look at chapter seven, uh, what is going on here? uh, First, we see at the beginning of chapter seven that Jesus heals a centurion's servant. Right. So there's a centurion that sends to Jesus to say, my servant is very ill. He's a very valued servant. Uh, Would you heal him? And Jesus does, and, and it's a, uh, a, a miracle of grace uh, and a miracle of mercy uh, to the centurion. And importantly, right there, the centurion being not a Jewish person. Uh, so this is an important aspect of uh, Jesus's uh, uh, ministry, because when Jesus hears what the centurion says about what Jesus can do, he says, uh, he, he remarks, verse 9 of chapter 7, he says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. So Jesus is doing this miracle. But then we have also uh, Jesus raising a dead person to life. And so that's most immediate in verses 11 to 17. We see that reported, right, that there is he's going to a town and out comes this uh, procession, a funeral procession. And there is a, a, a widow who has lost her son, the only son of his mother and that would have great implications for her as a woman as a widow because she would probably not have had the means to care for herself and she would have relied upon and depended upon her son to provide those means for her as she got older but jesus comes up to her Uh, verse 13 tells us that he had compassion on her and he raises this widow's son back to life And then look at what is reported here in verses 16 and 17 of Luke 7. 
Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So let's get into our passage proper. And first I want us to see in verses 18 to 20 the question that John poses to Jesus. Are you the one? So first I want us to see, are you the one? In verses 18 through 20. So John's disciples come, right? This report about Jesus is spreading everywhere. And John's disciples come to him and reports to him what has been going on. And at this point we should ask, well, where is John at? And it's highly likely that he is in prison. Uh, Luke has already recorded for us earlier in Luke chapter 3 verses 18 to 20. Uh, this being about uh, John the Baptist, right? So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So John is in prison, right? So he relies upon his disciples to get information in and out because he can't go himself. And we see that he is in prison because uh, he has spoken against the political powers that be and they did not want to hear his message. They were offended by the message. And so uh, Herod added this evil to them all that he locked up John in prison. And verse 19 tells us that John called two of his disciples to him. And we may say, why two? Well, that's because under the law, a, a thing could be established, a matter could be established by the, uh, by the given uh, word of two or three witnesses, by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So John is sending two witnesses to prove the matter. And what is the matter that he wants to prove? We find this very curious question. He wants to send them to the Lord Jesus saying, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? We find this curious, I think, because remember that John was Jesus' herald. John is the one who announced Jesus. John 1, 29-31. John 1, 29-31 says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. That is, uh, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. We could look at John chapter 3, verses 28 to 38, or 28 to 30, sorry. John 3, 28 to 30. John testifies there in John 3, starting in verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Right. So John recognizes that the purpose of his ministry, what God has given to him to do, is to announce the coming of the Christ. 
That's what he's doing to prepare the way of the Lord. And throughout the ministry of John, we see him say that again and again. So why then does John send his disciples to the Lord Jesus to ask this question? Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? It would seem quite evident that John should know the answer to that question, right? That's been the whole point of his ministry. So commentators are are split on this. Calvin and John Calvin and some others are of the mind that John is asking this question not for his sake. So here's one interpretation of this, right? John is not asking this question for his sake, but he's actually asking it for the sake of his disciples. And what John the, the John the Baptist is essentially doing, he's saying, "Okay, disciples, I want you to go to Jesus and ask this question. And as you hear the answer to this question, you will know for yourself that what I have said is true, that Jesus is the one who is to come. And you will know then when, as I'm languishing here in prison, that when I die, you're to go be with Jesus. You're to go follow after him. I don't want you setting up schools in my name saying, okay, we're now of, you know, we're followers of John the Baptist. But I want you to go and witness, to, to, to bear witness that, that Jesus is the Christ so that when I'm gone, you can come back and tell all the, my, all the others who follow after me, follow after Jesus. Jesus is indeed the one whom John the Baptist prepared the way for. And, right, right because he says, he must increase and I must decrease. Right? That, that seems like the logical conclusion of, the, of his ministry, right? That John would say, don't follow me anymore. Jesus is here, follow him. And so bear witness to what he does. And so uh, we find in the scriptures, John's disciples interacting with Jesus and his disciples, having different conversations about different subjects. And so maybe there is some, uh, some reality here that John is aware of this. He's aware that the, the time on his, this earth is growing, uh, growing short. And so he has to make sure and prepare his disciples because he doesn't want the point of his ministry to be missed, right? The point of his ministry is point to the Christ. However, other commentators take the question of, of which John asks at face value and which is to say, that John is asking for his own sake. Uh, R.C. Sproul comments and says this on this passage. R.C. Sproul says, He is suffering from isolation. He is in abject misery. Surely he would have been asking questions. What am I doing in this prison? When is Jesus going to make his move? How can Jesus allow the power of Herod to be greater than his, that I, as a prophet, should be left here alone? So the implication being right that John the Baptist is is suffering in prison and he he doesn't know what's going on and he has questions about what's going on. Why is he in prison if he has been faithful to God? Why is he in prison if Jesus is here to set things right? Which interpretation here is to be uh, preferred? Uh, both have merit and both make sense with the scriptural data that we have. Both could be a possibility. Uh, 
Uh, as for me, I interpret this question for John's benefit. I think John is asking this question for his own benefit, not just for the benefit of his disciples. And I don't think that this question means that John absolutely doubts uh, who Jesus is. But I think this is a moment of weakness maybe for him. He's not denying what he publicly preached, uh, but he's in the midst of suffering. And he wants to know if what he is hearing, what he, what the disciples, his disciples are reporting to him, if that has correlation, if that has bearing on his ministry. Uh, one of the things that we do have to deal with is that the common thought in Jesus' day about the Messiah was that the Messiah would be one who would be a military leader. And so perhaps that is in John's mind as well. right? John is thinking, okay, if the Messiah, the Christ, is going to be, be a military hero, he's going to come and set us free from the Romans, when is that going to happen? Like how much longer is it going to take for this to, to transpire? So we may not know exactly why John asked this question, but either way we see the disciples are sent. The question is asked, the disciples are sent, and we see in verse 20, John's disciples find Jesus and they say to him, John the Baptist has sent to us saying, are you the one who's to come or shall we look for another? And it's interesting here that Luke would record that twice, right? Why does Luke record this for us twice? Uh, remember that Luke is writing in a day and age when paper is not as abundant as it is today, right? We can go to the store and buy reams and reams and reams of paper, which is unheard of, unthought of in the day of Luke. So why is Luke repeating this question? And whenever we see repetition in the scripture, it's there for importance, right? It's there to emphasize the importance of it. So I, so I think what Luke is doing for us is that he is emphasizing that this is a really important question, not just because it comes from John the Baptist, but because it is a question that we have to deal with in our own day. It's a question that the readers of John, of Luke's gospel here, right, of Luke's gospel would have to deal with. They would want to know. Okay, we've, we've read a lot about what Jesus is doing, but is he actually the one? Or is there another to come? Was Jesus the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy? Is he the prophet that Moses talks about back in Deuteronomy? Is he the priest who would stand before God on behalf of the people? Is he the king who would come in the likeness of David to reign forever on that throne of David? Is Jesus the Christ? Is he the Messiah? Or should we still, as Jewish people in our own day do, look for the Messiah to come? Well, let's continue in our passage and ask the question, what have you seen and heard? What have you seen and heard? In verses 21 through 23, what have you seen and heard? Verse 21 begins, In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. So this is interesting, right? Because how does Jesus respond to the question of John's disciples? He doesn't actually speak to them directly, right? He doesn't say, yes, I am the one. No, I'm not the one. What does he do? We might also expect that he hears the question and then he chides John's disciple and said, go back and tell John, you have little faith. 
right? We might expect that, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't speak. Instead, he performs miracles, right? He heals people. He cures people. He does things nobody else can do. He casts out evil spirits, right? The demonic oppressions. People possessed by demons are set free from that. And on many who are blind, he bestowed sight. Right? The things that nobody else can do, Jesus is doing. This is the answer he gives, and then he actually speaks. In verse 22, he, he interprets what has happened, right? This is what he's doing. He's saying, okay, you've actually seen the answer. Now hear the explanation of the answer that I've given you. And he says, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. Go and tell John. Give testimony to that which you have borne witness to. And what have they seen? Well, they have seen the power of God poured out through Jesus Christ. What have they heard? The gospel, the message of the kingdom of God being proclaimed to the destitute. Now, back in Luke 4, we reference these same sorts of things. A few weeks back, we, we looked at that text and we found Jesus in the synagogue, uh, in his hometown, right on the Sabbath, uh, in Luke 4. And starting at verse 18, we see he goes to the synagogue and he is given the, the privilege of reading the scriptures. The, the prophet Isaiah, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah is given to him. He, he finds the place where it is written. And Luke records in Luke 4, uh, verses 18 and 19, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Luke records that in chapter 4, so he can record this in chapter 7 for us, so that we get the picture, right? That what Jesus says, when Jesus says to the to the crowd in the synagogue, this has been accomplished in your hearing. This has been fulfilled in your hearing. We see that it is indeed fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And when we discussed that passage, we talked about the metaphorical nature of a lot of what, what is going on there, a lot of what the prophet Isaiah uh, prophesies, uh, that there's metaphorical uh, uh, element to this. When we talk about the recovering of the sight of the blind, we talked about that in the terms of spiritual sight, right? That there are people, every person on this earth is born spiritually blind, spiritually dead. And it is by God's grace, the gift of the Holy Spirit, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, that we are given sight to see the beauty of and the wonder and the glory of Jesus as the Christ. The work of Christ is to heal us of our spiritual blindness, right? So, so we realize that in Luke 4. But as we come here to Luke 7, we see that the miracles that Jesus performed were, were more than just right, of a metaphorical nature. He did actually give people who were blind their sight. There are people who never saw or maybe saw at a time and because of illness or injury could no longer see who now were healed and could see again this jesus did 
and understand that the miracles that Jesus performed were there to prove the truth of his message. He was who he said he was, and he proved he was who he said he was by what he did. Jesus says to one of his disciples, Philip, in John 14, 11, when Philip expresses something of, uh, Jesus, we want to see the Father. And as Jesus responds to Philip, he says in John 14, 11, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Right? So what Jesus says there to Philip is, believe me, trust me. And even if you don't trust what I say, if, if you don't think that I'm a trustworthy person to take at face value, believe on account of the works that you see. Believe on what you have seen done. To Jesus' enemies, he says in John 5.36. In John 5.36, Jesus is talking about the testimony that has been given about him. And this is important because Jesus' enemies say, you're not who you say you are. You aren't in the truth. Well, John 5.36 records for us, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. So the first thing Jesus had said, right, is John the Baptist testified that I am the one who is to come. The testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Make no mistake, the works of Christ are significant. We may ask, shouldn't we just believe that Jesus is the Son of God because he says so? Right? Jesus is God, and if he says he's the Son of God, we ought to believe him. And we may be quick to say, yes, of course. But how are we to know that he is actually the Son of God and not just some crazy person walking down the street saying, follow after me, I'm the Son of God. Even in our day, right, there are very many charismatic leaders. There are people who are compelling, right? They are very compelling. We listen to them and we are moved to do whatever they tell us to because they are charismatic. They have, they have a personality uh, that, that is attractive to us. And we realize that cults are built upon personality, right? Cults exist because there is a winning personality, and such personality can be so compelling that it drives us to do unreasonable and illogical things. Not so many years ago, Jim Jones told his followers to poison themselves and their children. This is the great plan. We have to kill ourselves. From once we get the phrase, drinking the Kool-Aid. Because literally for the children, they put poison in the Kool-Aid because they knew it would be palatable to the children. So come here, children. Let us drink the Kool-Aid. Right? Understand that this is a man who, because of his personality, was able to win the hearts of the people to such a destructive end. As we look to Jesus, he tells us to take up our cross. He tells us to die to ourselves. He tells us that we're going to be offensive to the world around us. And we see the truth of that because in not a few instances, 
they proceed to hurt and kill us simply because we believe in Christ Jesus. And so what separates Jesus, what Jesus calls us to, to what someone like Jim Jones calls us to? And listen, this is really important. This is essential for us to understand because it's it's important because we're asking others to follow Jesus, right? It's not just that we're following Jesus, but we say everyone has to follow Jesus, right? We raise up our children to follow Jesus. And if we get this wrong, it's not just going to cost us some time here on earth, right? An hour or two every Sunday. It's about our eternity, Right, our our life in the hereafter, uh, or as Paul says in First Corinthians fifteen, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, we are most to be pitied because we're still dead in our sins. Here we are sacrificing our lives for the sake of this person we say is risen from the dead, but if he's not risen, what does it matter? What do we do with all this? So this is really important for us to understand. So what distinguishes Jesus? As the son of God saying, I'm the son of God, and just some random person walking down the road saying, follow after me, I'm the son of God. And this is, so this is where we get Christ's works, right? The works that Jesus did. Jesus's miracles are a testimony to the truth of what he speaks. Interestingly, uh, earlier in John chapter three, verses one through three, we we probably are well familiar with this, right? We know John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him might not perish, but have eternal life, right? We know that. But what prompted that uh, that speech from Jesus, right, that word from Jesus, is a Pharisee comes to him. A religious leader comes to him in the night. John 3, starting in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So what does Nicodemus say to Jesus? Did you see that there? We know that you are a teacher come from God. How? How does Nicodemus how do the other Pharisees know this? What, what is the inclination? What is the indication? For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. To which Jesus responds by saying in a way, uh, if you believe that I really come from God, if you believe that, that what I is say is backed up by what I do, then listen to this message of mine. The kingdom of God comes through new birth. The works of Jesus come from the message of Jesus. And this is the testimony of Scripture, right? This is the point of the Gospels. Why do we have the Gospels? Why do we have four of them? Because they're a record of the testimony. They're, they're a reliable record of the things that Jesus has done and said. And we can trust that what he has said is backed up by what he has done. Right? That's the whole point in Luke recording that John's question a second time, repeating for us that question, right? Are you the one to come? Because we need the answer to this question. We need desperately to see and to understand the answer to that question. 
And Jesus replies, right, by showing the power of God at work in him. And the implication is this. If Jesus was lying, he could do none of what he did. Because God would not empower someone who spoke blasphemous lies about himself. Right, so this is a, uh, this is important for us. God the Father does not verify the words of liars. And you could go back to the Old Testament and see that that is a, that is a, a standard for the prophet. If a prophet proposed to speak on behalf of God and it didn't come true, you were to reject that prophet and say he's a false prophet. So right, one of the, the realities of the ministry of the prophets and the miracles that they did, as we think of like Elijah and Elisha, for instance, is those prove the message that they were given. Those prove the message that they were given. And we see that ultimately fulfilled in Christ Jesus. So Jesus sends the reply back to John through these two witnesses, says that he is the one the scripture foretold. He is the Christ. He is the power of God. He is salvation. He is life. He is the light of the world. He is. And he continues and says and gives this beatitude, right? And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. To John, he says, right? He, he's speaking to John. He says, blessed if you're not offended by me. And we might find that strange. But we know that there were many in Jesus' day that were offended by him. They were offended by Jesus. There were many religious people in Jesus' day that hated him. They hated him for what he said and for what he did. We did not look at it when we were in Luke 4 at the time, but after Jesus preaches in his hometown synagogue, as he goes through that message, uh, we it actually ends in this. You would think that here's Jesus saying the scripture has been fulfilled, saying that this is this is happening. Hear the good news. Hear the gospel. That the people would be excited. That they would be uh, right. They would be celebrating. Jesus is from their hometown. The Christ is from their hometown. That's that's worthy of celebration, right? That's something to glory in. But they respond quite differently. Verses twenty-eight and thirty of Luke uh, twenty-eight to thirty of Luke four says this. Luke four twenty-eight to thirty. When they heard these things. All the in the synagogue were filled with, what's your answer? What do you think they're filled with? Joy, wonder, marvel, astonishment. No, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They're angry. They're mad. They're upset at what Jesus has said. They're offended by him. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This was not the time for Jesus to die. Though that was the intention of those in the synagogue. That was the intention of those who Jesus had grown up alongside of. That was the intention of those who bore witness to Jesus growing up To the Christ, to the Son of God coming and visiting them. Everywhere Jesus went was cause for offense. And everywhere the gospel message has gone has been cause for offense. Uh, read through the book of Acts and see how time and time again 
the message of Jesus offends greatly. And we call it the good news, and we may ask, well, why does it offend? If it's good news, who's offended by good news? Such is the nature of mankind, right? Such is the fallenness of mankind that we we hate good news. Um, and it doesn't take us it doesn't take a stretch for us to realize that, right? Uh, think of the person that you dislike the most, and if you heard something good happen to them, what do you generally generally feel? Right? You're not like, oh, I'm so happy for them. They're they're that's great. I'm glad to hear that. And then you're like, right? You start grumbling, say, ah, they don't deserve that. Why do they get that, not me? But read through the book of Acts, you see this again and again. The people revolt against the message, they're offended by it, and that happens from both Jew and Greek alike. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish or if you're Greek. It it doesn't matter. It, it crosses cultural barriers. Here's something for everyone to unite around. The gospel message is offensive. The message of Jesus, the meek and lowly Savior, is an offensive one. The wonderful works of Jesus are causes for stumbling. As it was in Jesus' day, so too is it in our own day. And my question for you today is, are you offended by Jesus? Because there are some of you that are hearing this that find Jesus' words offensive. When you hear him talk about sin and the need for repentance, you get angry. You, like the people in his hometown, are filled with wrath. You want to be done with that message and the messenger of the message. You find the whole idea of having to ask anyone forgiveness, especially about things that are not too bad, silly. Wrong. Certainly there are some people who need to seek forgiveness, but you're just not one of them. Well, what's the big deal about being offended by Jesus? Right? He says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. But well, what's the big deal about being offended by Jesus? Well, the end of the one offended by Jesus is destruction. The second death. Hell. The reality is that we, apart from the grace of God, are offensive to him. We are an affront to his majesty and glory, his holiness. And in our sinfulness, we are the smell of death before the God of life. But Jesus came. Jesus is the one who came and by his wonderful work on the cross, paid the penalty for his people. He nailed the record of the debt that stood against us with his legal demands to the cross, disarming the powers of darkness, and setting his people free from the power of sin and death. And what remains for you today is repentance. What remains for you is to seek uh, the forgiveness of your sins, to forsake your sins, and to turn to God, to do away with all that which is evil in the sight of God, all the evil of thought and word and deed, to turn from them, to repent, to turn to God. And if you confess your sins... He is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, as the Scripture says. But if you find Jesus offensive, you will find yourself offensive before a God of absolute moral perfection and purity. But blessed is the one who is not offended by Jesus. Blessed is the one who hears the words of Jesus and puts them into action. Why? Because you will know all the goodness of Jesus Christ. You will know the glories of his grace forever in that place called heaven. You will, your body of sin will be transformed into a body of glory like Christ. You will know the end of sadness and sorrow, sickness and sin. And you will rise triumphant from the grave as our Lord and Savior did 
on that Lord's Day so many years ago. And this, brothers and sisters in Christ, is surely a cause for rejoicing. How greatly we ought to praise God for all of his goodness towards us in all things. And how much reason we have to rejoice always. And again I say, rejoice. So look to Jesus. Believe in him. Trust that he is the Son of God, the Christ, the one who was to come, who did indeed come. Let us pray. O great God, we pray that the truth of Jesus may be, may be felt and known in our hearts and our minds this day. Father God, we pray that you would have mercy on those who are offended by Jesus and you would open their eyes to see the truth of themselves and of Jesus Christ, even this very day. Oh, Father God, that they would turn from their sin, repent of it, and turn unto you. And they would give you the glory, do your name. Father, we pray for those of us that you have had such grace upon to, that, we, that we know and see who Jesus is, that we believe and trust that he is the Christ, the Messiah, that what he accomplished on this earth was for our benefit, for the remission of our sins, that he became our propitiation, that he was the sacrifice that we needed, that he fulfilled all the law, that he fulfilled all the scriptures. Oh, Father God, we thank you for the grace to see this truth. Father God, we thank you for your mercy upon us in regenerating and renewing us by the Holy Spirit that we might believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we confess that we may be uh, like that one who came unto Jesus and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Father God, we confess that we may have doubts that arise within us, whether genuine or whether born of the sin that we don't want to do away with. And Father God, we pray that even in this moment we might have the assurance of your word that those doubts may flee, that the evil one who whispers such lies in our ears as did God really say might be silenced. And, O oh Lord God, that we might have a vision of Jesus Christ, that we might fix our eyes upon him and follow after him in all our ways. O Lord God, have mercy and grace yet more upon us, we pray. In the name of our blessed Savior, Jesus. Amen.